Welcome to part two of our continuing series entitled, God Has Great Plans for Your Past. If you missed part one, I want to encourage you to go to pmchurch.org. There you will find archived uh, not just last week's presentation, uh, but uh, many, many others as well. We encourage you to go there to catch up on what we tackled in part one, because we're going to build on that today in part two. Now, to begin with part two, I want to point out that, that much of the time, when your past is overshadowing your present, the steps that we described in part one are sufficient. The divine eraser, Christ's blood, does its part. Our guilt is indeed removed, and as we discussed last week, numerous other blessings will follow. And, and, there are some times when God places still another tool at our fingertips. Uh, indeed, it, it is a command. Under certain circumstances, God, God makes a command that we, that we do something. But as with all of God's commands, it is also a very useful tool. God is generally not interested in just making commands. He makes commands for our benefit, for our blessing, that we might grow and flourish. And, and this tool, this tool that God places at our fingertips is sufficiently powerful that if we have wronged people in the past and that wrong is casting a shadow over our present, we can take this additional tool and apply it in a biblical fac- fashion and at the very least, at the very least, it will lead to a quiet sense of peace that will satisfy you at a deep soul level. And at best, it will positively transform relationships in your sphere of influence for generations to come. Let's get to it. If you have your Bible, take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1. Page 318 in most of the Red Pew Bibles that are scattered throughout the congregation. Page 318, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, beginning with verse 1. Now, a little background here of what we're going to be reading. Uh, This is a story about a guy by the name of Manasseh. He was the 14th ruler of Judah. He was a king. And uh, he reigned from about 696 B.C. to 641 B.C., a total of 55 years, the longest of any Jewish king. That was a long time, 55 years that he reigned. You may remember uh, last, a few weeks ago, we talked about the prophet Micah, and the prophet Micah's ministry overlapped with good king Hezekiah's reign. Well, Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. Let's see if the apple fell close to the tree. Verse 1, 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did, what's the next word? Evil. Uh Uh-oh. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Now, here comes this laundry list here with verse 3. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. 
In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, that list is easily bad enough. This, 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 is, this is evil Hall of Fame type of stuff here. But the list isn't done yet. The verse 7, he took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, quote, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I've commanded them and concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. Does that sound familiar at all? Micah chapter 6. This is another covenant lawsuit. God here is laying out the terms of the covenant. He's calling you know, Judah to account. He's saying, this is what I asked you to do. But look what you've been doing. In verse 9, But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Not surprisingly... Many historians believe that Manasseh was the most evil king that Judah ever had. I mean, you'd hate to see who's in first place if he's not, right? I mean, this, this is bad stuff. He's also responsible for, I think, one of the greater crimes in the Old Testament, uh, the death of the prophet Isaiah. You know, Isaiah's major role in the Old Testament, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the, the, the messianic prophecies that came through his ministry, and the work that Isaiah had to do with King Manasseh obviously was one of rebuke. Don't do this. And it was not just Isaiah. There were other prophets, too, that God said, you know, don't do this, speaking through his prophets. And one by one, Manasseh doesn't just, like, momentarily silences them. He kills them. Hezekiah... Excuse me, Manasseh is an evil man who does terrible, evil things. And the question begs to be asked, what does God do about this? I mean, what, what, what happens in God's scheme of things when, when there is this evil, wicked man doing evil and wicked things? Well, let, let's find out. Verse 10, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention, probably a reference to Isaiah, etc. So the Lord brought them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. <laughs> Sister, we're just getting started, so keep, keep, keep going, keep going, yes. Uh, many people, indeed, when this happened, undoubtedly, they said, Amen! I mean, I mean, at the risk of gross understatement, what a jerk. I mean, I mean what a, what a, you know, the dregs of humanity. This, this is Manasseh, right? And, and, and we easily and should at that moment have cried justice. At last, God has brought justice. Evil does have consequences. Justice will come. God will see to that. And with that in mind, let's picture Manasseh for just a moment here. 
Now, now there's no pictures in the Bible. Sometimes we we wish there were pictures in the Bible. There are other times we can be eternally grateful that there are no pictures in the Bible, right? But but in this particular case, I I would have liked a little snapshot at least. So I'm just going to use my sanctified imagination. Here's here's what I imagine Manasseh being like. Manasseh is uh, in really bad shape, physically and, and, and emotionally. He has been taken forcibly in chains from his home in Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. Now, just in case you're wondering, how does Babylon fit into this? Babylon, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was going to rise not too long in the future from this story. But at this point, they are still subject to the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians would use the city of Babylon as, as, as a base of operations, including to imprison political prisoners. And so they, the Assyrians take Manasseh. It takes weeks to travel across that part of the world, from, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I'm going to guess they did not take him first class. I mean, there, there, was, there was no reason to. I mean, he, he was completely at their mercy. They put a hook through his nose. Now, some of you are probably picturing like this, this surgical steel fish hook type thing. No. The Hebrew is interesting. It probably was a thorn. In other words, they are making a statement with Manasseh's arrest and incarceration. Anybody who saw him would see this, this thorn shoved through his nose. This person, they said, has no value. And he's there in this jail cell, wherever it was in Babylon. And, he, and here's my guess. I don't know this for certain. But, but you know, wild living takes its toll. Some of you know exactly what I mean. If, if you live a, a, a sinful, wild lifestyle and you do it long enough, pretty soon the signs will begin to show. Okay. And so I imagine this is the case with Manasseh because he's been doing this kind of stuff for decades. I mean, if, if he sacrifices his sons in the flames, do we really think he's not doing drugs? Is he not drinking? Is he not chasing women? I mean, I, th- I think Manasseh left nothing out of his reach. I think he did it all, and he did it for as long as he possibly good, could, and anyone who stood in his way was liable to be killed. And now this guy, you know, needle marks in his arms, chains on his wrists, locked in a cell, a long, long ways from anybody that he can order to do something. If I had to guess from a human perspective, my guess would be that Manasseh is probably one of the most bitter, angry, depressed human beings on the planet. I don't know. Maybe he might have even been suicidal. And yet, that is absolutely not how the story ends. Take a look at this. Verse 12, 2 Chronicles 33. In his distress, this is Manasseh, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Let me tell you why the other half of you didn't say amen. Okay? Because Manasseh is the worst of the worst. 
I mean, he is the Hitler of his era, is he not? I mean, destroying his own people. We didn't read it here, but if you read in 2 Kings, kind of a parallel account here of Manasseh's life, it says he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. The streets were running with the blood of the people that he mowed down. He sacrifices his son in the flames. He used people to no end, and ultimately he destroys the sovereignty of an entire nation of people. And God has the audacity to forgive him? That is scandalous. And it was every bit as scandalous when he forgave you. It was every bit as scandalous when he forgave me. Because you see, while Manasseh sacrificed his sons in the flames, you and I caused the sacrifice of the Son of God. There is no one that merits the grace of God. That's why they call it grace. Because we don't deserve it. And as challenging to the mind as it can sometimes be when we see stories of this incredible forgiveness that God lavishes on a, on a, on a drag like Manasseh, it must serve to remind us just how good God is to forgive even people like us. Praise the Lord for His goodness. Amen? Amen. Now, this would be a great place to end the story, right? I mean, if, if Hollywood were writing the script for this, this would be the end. Uh, Manasseh, uh, you know, would have uh, a horse. He would get on it. He would ride off into the sunset, and the credits would roll, and, and, and this would be the end, right? Okay. Uh, you know, bad guy makes good, and, and you know, we're done. It is, it is not even remotely close to the end of the story because, because what God is going to do here, God is about to perform a restoration work in and through the very one who had been the worst king that Judah ever knew. Let, let, let's pick the story up here. Verse 14, 2 Chronicles 33. It says, afterward, okay, so Manasseh, he's back on the throne now. He's in Judah. He's, he's king again. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring, in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. Verse 15, he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord, and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it, and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Wow. You know, in part one, we learned four things about God's plan for our past. Here is point number five. God often restores us from our past by having us restore others in the present. God often restores us from our past by having us restore others in the present. This is not to, to earn forgiveness. No, it, it is a fruit of it. It's not salvation by works. This is, this is a fruit of that salvation, this tool that God offers to us, and under certain circumstances, He commands that it be done. Do you see what Manasseh is doing here? He is performing a restoration. He is making what is often called restitution, or sometimes it's called making amends. 
He is restoring that which he broke, that which he stole, etc., etc. And what a powerful thing it was. I mean, do you understand the magnitude of what Manasseh is doing here? He, he takes here, you know, verse 14, he does this, 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 this fortification project here. He said, afterwards he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David west of the Gihon Spring of the Valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel, he also made it much higher. This is huge. You know, I've, I've been to the old city of, of Jerusalem before and it's in, not surprisingly, the new city of Jerusalem. Uh, new, the Jerusalem itself proper today is quite large, but the old city is, is by human standards, by city standards today, it's pretty small. But if you don't have cranes and bulldozers and quarries that can mechanically cut stone and whatnot, you begin to understand this was a massive undertaking. I mean, Manasseh is, is, is not just like, like, like putting a few rocks together and calling it good. This is a dramatic intensification of the fortifications of the city of Jerusalem, and then by extension also for the rest of Judah when he installs these military commanders. Now, what is Manasseh doing here? You know, scholars speculate that there's one of two things happening. What is clear is that Manasseh's sin had resulted in Judah becoming a vassal state to the Assyrians. This was the condition under which... Manasseh was restored to his throne. Being a vassal state meant that if there were state interests for Assyria, they could call on their vassals and say, well, you need to support us. Generally speaking, that was military stuff. They had to fight in the Assyrian wars. Well, Manasseh knows this, and perhaps the first reason why, why Manasseh is engaging in all of this, this fortification, he knows that Assyria is planning on tangling with Egypt from the south. Well, guess what? Judah is on the way. Okay, from, from Egypt on their way to the Assyrians. As a vassal state, Judah would be expected to defend the Assyrians. Manasseh may have figured that he can't change that fact, but he can fortify Jerusalem and Judah to do everything in his power to minimize Jewish casualties on the day of battle. Or secondly, it's also possible that Manasseh was convicted that the only righteous course of action was to rebel to fight the Assyrians, to throw off their yoke of bondage. And if that was going to happen, again, to make every chance of victory possible, Manasseh fortifies Jerusalem and Judah. It was a massive project. If, you've seen, if you go there and you see the walls even today, it was a massive project. But Manasseh believed it was worth it if he could save the lives of the people he had in the past so badly corrupted. And after making these physical amends, building up the city, etc., he makes spiritual amends. He removes the idols to foreign gods. He removes the idolatrous altar from the Jerusalem temple. He removes all of the altars from the temple mount and throughout Jerusalem. He restores the altar of God. He offers sacrifices on it, restoring it to its rightful use. And he makes a proclamation to the entire nation, serve Jehovah, the one true God. You know, we don't know how immediately effective his attempts at reform were. Surely there were some in Judah that ceased their evil, idolatrous ways. But there is one thing that we can know for certain, and that is what happened two years after Manasseh's death. You see, at Manasseh's death, his son Ammon became king. Ammon was wicked. 
But he was assassinated after only two years in power. Now, two years, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the 55 years that dad had. And in Ammon's place, Ammon's son, a boy by the name of Josiah, was made king instead. And Josiah became such an important and successful reformer in Judah's history that the book of Second Chronicles dedicates two full and lengthy chapters just to his reign. Could it be, could it be, that the spirit of reform started by Manasseh and confirmed by Manasseh's attempts to restore the pledge he had broken planted the seeds for Josiah and his advisors to eventually fully lead Judah back to God? God does indeed often restore us from our past by having us restore others in the present and such restorations can bear fruit for generations to come. Now, if you're listening right now, and perhaps you have a a sense that there is something that you need to make amends for, something in the past that you've done, you've harmed others, you need to make amends for it, if that's the case, let me offer you two pieces of counsel. First, as we talked about with confession in part one, seek the counsel of wise, experienced Christians before you make amends. Seek their counsel before you do it. Now, again, the the reason for this is probably obvious. If you've genuinely harmed somebody, particularly if it's quite a ways in the past, your emotions are probably quite wrapped up in that. If you've spent time trying to hide this, etc., and you've got a lot of emotional energy, you are probably not seeing the situation in an objective fashion. You need someone who can. So, so, so find an experienced Christian, someone of long experience in Christ. Uh, find a Christian counselor, a pastor, a teacher that you trust, and, and tell them what you're thinking about and get, let them give their input. You know, I, I have seen, when people take this step, it, it can be very fruitful. I've seen some people that were overly sensitive and they thought that because of what they had done in the past, they were going to have to, you know, sacrifice themselves on an altar and pay a billion dollars and all of this type of, and it wasn't true. They overestimated the impact of what they had done. There are some people that that have the opposite problem. They're numbed out. Maybe they lived a life that that was so thoroughly steeped in immorality, it's difficult for them to grasp the magnitude of what they did. Ask somebody. One of the great benefits of our congregation here is that we have many seasoned saints that have been around the track a number of times. If you're younger and you're looking for somebody to share with, maybe get to know some of our people here. They just might be able to give you the information that you need. Consult with somebody. Seek the counsel of wise and experienced Christians before you make amends. And secondly, to the best of your ability, let the amends fit the sin. Let the amends fit the sin. In other words, if possible, restore what you took. Okay. Now, now I, I wish we had time to, to study more here. You know, they say that preaching is the art of what not to say. And so, if we had more time, uh, we would look at Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 6, 1 through 7. We don't have time this morning, unfortunately. But, the, but there it gives some very good counsel for proportionality and making amends and this type of a thing. I encourage you to read it. But restoring what you took to the best of your ability. Every word in this particular counsel here is important. This is very much what I think Manasseh did. Okay, he, he robbed the temple in Jerusalem of its sanctity, right? So, so he did all that he could to bring it back. 
He took the practice of the worship of the one true God away from his people in Jerusalem. So to make amends, he took all of the pagan altars out of Jerusalem in an attempt to restore true worship. Let us do the same. If amends are called for, go to it. Get the counsel that you need and go to it. If you stole money, give it back with interest. If you cut someone off in traffic, if possible, pull over one lane, let them go past and smile genuinely as they do. If you have slandered someone, go to the third party that you told the lies to and, and correct them, and if necessary, the people that they told, et cetera, et cetera. Which brings us to an important point. Anyone who takes seriously the Bible's call to make amends will quickly realize that sometimes there is not a one-to-one relationship between our sin and an attempt at restoration. I'll use an extreme example, murder. If you, if you kill somebody and, and you have a conversion experience, you, you have a Manasseh experience, and, and the Lord forgives you and whatnot, you cannot bring that person back from the grave. Only God can do that. And, and so, so the one-to-one connection there is not there. And so what do we do? What do we do in those situations to, to make amends? Some people say that gives you a pass. You don't have to do anything. So over the years, there have been a tiny, tiny number of situations where I have said to a person, I'm not sure how to do this one. I don't know what would be appropriate to do. I said, let's pray. Let's pray and see what the Lord leads on this. I don't know. I don't know. And in asking other people, they didn't know either. But generally speaking, there is a way. There is a way. God is gracious. God is good. And God is very creative. And even when there is not a one-to-one option, where we can't just you know, restore something, God asks us to do the best that we can, to do the best that we can. I think this is part of what Manasseh is doing when he reinforced the battlements of Jerusalem. He had stolen Judah's sovereignty, in essence, right? I mean, through his, his, his profligacy, etc. He had caused Judah to lose its sovereignty. And he probably knew in his lifetime that he would not be able to get it back. So he did the next best thing. He did all he could to defend Judah from Assyria's rule as much as possible. So again, let us do the same. If you cheated on a test, you can't retake the test, okay? That's not going to happen. And you probably can't reset whatever curve you busted for the other students in the class because your artificial grade kind of inflated it for them, right? Okay. So you need to do the best that you can. Perhaps you need to go to tell tell the teacher, explain what you did, say that you are sorry for doing this and you want to make it right. What can you do? And be willing to take their suggestions seriously. If you lied to someone in business leading to a, a loss of revenue, there are times when you cannot assess exactly how much money was lost or who all was adversely affected. So do your best. Get advice. Be willing to take their suggestions seriously. Whatever the sin was, if you are willing, there is nearly always a way to make amends. And some of you are thinking right now, you're crazy. Are you out of your mind? Who would do this kind of stuff? 
I mean, I mean the, the, the risk, I mean, if you make amends, I mean, the, the, the admission that comes with making the amends and, and, and getting involved with, you know, restoring things, oh, that's, that's messy business. Are you crazy? Oh, probably, but that's beside the point. Let, 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 me, let me sweeten the pot a little bit here for you. If you are intimidated by the prospect of making amends, well, maybe I should put it this way. If you're not intimidated by it, it's either because you have done this before and you know what's coming, the good things that are coming, uh, or, 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 or you're ignorant and you don't understand. Because there is a cost here, is there not? Mostly to our pride. We have to humble ourselves and admit to someone else that we messed up. And why would you do that? Two reasons. Number one, the obvious one, you just might help to make someone else's life better. Restoring the pledge does that. If you stole money from somebody and then you give it back with interest, that's good for them. (laughs) That's a blessing for them. Why does God command us in certain situations to make amends? Because the other people have a loss and we have the opportunity to fill it, to make it right again. Praise the Lord, especially if you're on the receiving end of an amends. Wouldn't you like to get back whatever it was that was stolen? Yeah, we would. This is one great blessing that comes when we make amends. And number two, there is a great blessing for you as well. Now, there's a whole bunch of stories that I wish I could tell you next to illustrate this point. But until some people die and there are certain attorneys that are no longer doing what they're doing, I can't tell you those things. These are not stories about me. These are stories about other people that I've helped over the years with with amends and whatnot. I can't tell you those stories, right? So I'm going to bring it down a few notches, right? And I'm going to tell you a story which illustrates the blessing. It's at a lower level, but I think you'll see what God is trying to say here. When I was 12 years old, I was uh, working that summer on my grandparents' farm in Oklahoma. And uh, very strangely, on, on, the, on the day that this story takes place, I had no farm assignment that afternoon. I mean, the sun was blazing, as it often does in Oklahoma, July, August. Maybe, you know, people are sweating. They were working hard and whatnot. But there was nothing for me to do. Grandpa said, hey, you know, hang out. If we have something, we'll let you know, whatnot. The same thing was true for my cousin Bruce. Bruce didn't have anything to do either. So picture this. Farmhouse, okay, top of the hill, overlooking 2,000 acres of farmland, okay. Everybody's gone, everybody's working. Two young guys, nothing to do. What could go wrong? So finally, Bruce says, hey, I got a new BB gun, let's do target practice. Excellent idea. So we went outside, and, uh, you know, being a farm, there's, you know, there's things you can shoot at. There's a few trees up there. And so, you know, we're shooting at these trees and whatnot, but trees soon become boring. And what you need is something, a target, that, w- that will recognize your marksmanship, okay? That will give you affirmation that you made a good shot. And so Bruce goes over to uh, one of the barns nearby there, one of the sheds, and he brings back a number 10 can. Now, you know what a number 10 can is? These are the big cans, right? Now, if you don't know what it is, picture the, the big, big Frank containers that cost $478.32. Okay, that's a number 10 can, right? So, so this one was empty and, you know, silver there. We could see it. And man, when you hit that thing, it gave a very satisfying ping, right, like that. So we put it on the fence post and we get back 20, 25 feet. Ping, ping, ping. 
Well, the only thing better than one can is two or three or four cans, right? So, so Bruce goes off to find some more uh, recognition hardware, right, for us. And I don't know why, but he was gone what seemed to me like a long time. I've got, I've got the BB gun here in my hand, and I'm looking around for stuff to hit and shoot and whatnot. And, and I do a 180. I, I turn 180 degrees around from where the can is on the fence post. And there is my grandparents' house. Okay. It's got this little uh, concrete walk that goes up a couple steps there. And, and to the left, from my perspective, the, the left there, there was this big plate glass bay window. And I thought to myself, I wonder what it's like if you shoot a BB at a big plate glass window. And obviously, being fully convinced of my genius, I didn't give it another thought. I raised the gun to my sights, cocked it there, pulled the trigger. So I was disappointed that the window did not shatter, all right? But there was this, 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 this kind of this, this thunk sound. And unbeknownst to me, my grandparents were sitting right on the other side of that window. You know, the, kind of the reflection, you, know, there was, it, it, you could see some through if you're really focused, but, but you couldn't quite see. Unbeknownst to me, Grandpa was not down at the farm doing various farm things. I'd forgotten that sometimes after lunch, Grandpa would either take a nap or he would read something in his favorite chair in the living room. Sometimes Grandma would join him. And so picture this. Boy, 12-year-old with a, with a BB gun, shoots a BB. It hits in, almost in the middle there, lower, lower middle. It makes this big pop sound. This conical piece flies out the other side, and Grandpa and Grandma levitate out of their chairs. <laughs> Very spry for people their age. I mean, they, 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 they were quick on their feet. Oh, what happened? They rush over to the door. They open the screen door, and they say, What happened? All right, now picture this. It, it would have required a team of forensic experts to figure out what had happened, right? So here I am, right, about 20 feet away or so from the glass. I've got a gun in my hand, and I'm looking their way. And they say, what happened? You remember last week that I said that uh, after cheating on that spelling test in second grade, I never cheated academically again? That didn't apply to agriculture and grandparents' farms, unfortunately, Okay. <laughs> So I had two choices. I could own up to it or, or, or I, I, I could lie about it. And I chose option B. And I said, oh, uh, so I was shooting at that can over there. And the BB hit it and it ricocheted off and it hit the glass and broke a hole in it. I am so sorry. And you know what Grandma and Grandpa did? That's what happened? Now, I mean, the physics of this are obviously impossible, right? I mean, anybody who's ever done a BB gun, I mean, even the highest power air, air, air gun is not going to send a BB off 20 feet that direction, all the way. It won't even make it back to the house. It's going to dribble down the sidewalk, much less put a hole in the window. And he said, that's what happened, huh? Yeah. That's what happened. And they went, Okay. Went back inside. Hmm. You know, I didn't tell them what happened that day or the next or the next. In fact, I didn't tell them for 10 years. Okay. 
Ten years later, I was in the islands uh, as a student missionary, and I was studying about this kind of thing, like what we've been studying about. And I became convicted that this was something that I needed to make right. Now, you need to understand something here. The, I mean, to a lot of people listening, like, well, you know, come on, it's a BB gun, a kid with a BB gun in a window, what's the big deal, right? So, so for me, this is not, this is not actually my, my blood grandparents. Uh, they're, my, they're my stepmother's parents. But from a fairly early age, they took me in as their own. And my, my, my family life, there was definitely chaos. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll be generous. There was chaos, you know, during those days. And to, to have an island of, 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 of peace and safety and honest hard work. I mean, it was, you know, th- this was a great gift to me. And I felt like I had compromised that and had let it slide for 10 years, you know. So I said, I'm going to make this right. And so I, I, I wrote a check. Uh, and I, was, I, I, I wrote a letter. I explained what had happened. I said, you know, I, I hope this amount will cover it. If it doesn't cover the, the replacement for the window, please let me know. Because they never replaced the window. Every time I would go to my grandparents' house, there was this hole like there, right? In the wintertime, it would whistle because the wind is blowing by, you know? It was like whistling to this, Shane did this, Shane did this, you know, kind of thing. And so, I mean, this constant reminder that, that I had done this thing to these very, very good people. And so, so I wrote, you know, dear grandma and grandpa, I just want to let you know that. And I told them the story, right? Well, when you're out in the middle of the Pacific, I don't know what it takes now, but back in those days, it took weeks. It, it was probably two to three months before I got back a response from my grandmother. My, my grandfather was a man of few words, so I wasn't surprised to see it was grandma's handwriting. And she said, dear Shane, we thought that might have been what had happened. <laughs> and and she, she included my check back to me. She, she, didn't, she didn't replace it. She, she didn't use the money for that. And she said, I, I, I still remember the phrase. She said, all is forgiven. <laughs> all is forgiven. And the weight of the world rolled off my 22-year-old shoulders. You see, for as difficult as making amends can be, it's not like there's no benefit. (laughs) There are good things that God is looking to give to you to come out from under the shadow of your past. Amends aren't to be done to earn your forgiveness. It's already been given. It is to be a fruit of that forgiveness that we reach out to restore the pledge that we broke. So I just want to ask you, how is it with you today? Are there things in your life that maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder? You know, something happened yesterday or 20 years ago that you should take care of. I just want to gently encourage you to listen to that voice. If you haven't done so yet, confess and repent. If you've done that and the shadow is still there, maybe God is calling you to make some sort of amends. Find some wise people. Ask for their counsel. Let them help you to go through this process. And if you do it, other people will be blessed and you will receive a blessing as well. You know, the good news of amends is not just that, though. The good news of amends is that there's actually not as much risk to it as we often think. Why do I say that? It's not that there's no risk. Don't misunderstand. But there's often a lot less than we think because 
God has been at this for thousands of years. He knows how to restore people. You're no surprise to him. He knows how to do this. In fact, for, for all the goodness that we get back from doing amends, for all the blessings and the, and, the, and the freedom and the light that we feel in there, for God, it's just standard operating procedure. He's a pro at this. He knows how to do it, and he can provide what you need to guide you through the same process. Just another standard restoration. That's what God is calling you to. Praise the Lord that God really does have great plans for our past.